Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the on the New Books Network. I am your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to David Sweet about his book, Three Seconds in Munich, the controversial 1972 Olympic basketball final. This is David's second book. His first book was titled Lamar Hunt, The Gentle Giant Who Revolutionized Professional Sports. David Sweet, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Paul. David, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling the listeners a little bit about yourself. Yes, uh, I grew up in Lake Forest, Illinois, outside of Chicago, and went to grade school in Lake Forest, Uh, went off to high school at Deerfield Academy in Massachusetts, and then went to Denison University in Ohio for college. Uh, Soon after that, I got my first reporting job in the uh, Chicago area for a weekly newspaper. And realizing I I needed a little more training, uh, I decided to go to the University of Southern California for uh, journalism school as as a graduate student. And that was a great experience. Uh, I wrote a couple of sports papers there. And uh, soon after graduation from USC, got a job as a sports editor for a daily newspaper in Glendale, along with two weekly papers, and really enjoyed that. Uh, We cover the pro teams, the college teams, and even high school sports. So could cover, you know, the Dodgers one day and then uh, USC Trojan football and, and so on and so forth. Uh, after leaving Los Angeles, I went across the country to New York, joined the Wall Street Journal right when WSJ.com was beginning. And I was a sports columnist for them at a column called Nothing But Net, which focused on sports on the Internet, which was really booming back in that day. I then wrote for Sports Business Journal, a national trade publication, uh, as well as NBCSports.com. I've also run some uh, local weekly papers, uh, more on the news side than the sports side. And uh, as you know, as you noted, this is my second book, and uh, very excited about it. So, how did you come to write about this topic? I think it, this uh, topic is just so dramatic, so controversial. And it just really appealed to me uh, for those reasons, especially as well. I had attended the U.S.-USSR Olympic hockey game at Lake Placid in 1980, the Miracle on Ice. So I actually was there for the game that was the polar opposite of this game. Uh, so that intrigued me as well. Um, but this 1972 Olympic game had a little bit of everything. You had the horrible terrorism around the games. Uh, You had the U.S. having won 63 in a row, never lost an Olympic game, losing this game to the Soviet Union. Uh, You had corruption as part of it with uh, the head of international basketball changing the clock twice. And you had the principled stand at the end of the U.S. basketball players rejecting their medals, the first and only time in Olympic history athletes had rejected their medals. So it really has uh, a lot to it, I'd say. 
This book is so well researched. Can you tell the listeners a little about your process for researching the book? Yeah, I'd love to because I, I really enjoy research, uh, and I did as well for the Lamar Hunt book. Um, I, thank God for the internet. Um, it makes everything much easier uh, trying to find old newspaper articles and old magazine articles in this day and age than perhaps 30 years ago. Um, and I, I would point out, you know, back in 1972, there wasn't ESPN, there wasn't Twitter. So really, my, my main research sources were old newspapers and old magazines. Um, and I think in a way, this game got lost a little bit amid the terrorism that had happened four days before. But I found enough um, in my research, uh, you know, to, to put some information together, obviously. I also read a, a number of books of uh, the main characters, such as Hank Iba, the U.S. coach, uh, Don Haskins, the assistant coach, and a number of other books that may have just had a little information about that game in particular, but were still helpful. And uh, I also... Um, was helped by the University of Illinois, uh, Avery Brundage, sorry, Avery Brundage, who was head of the International Olympic Committee. His papers are housed there, and I was able to access some of those. Um, he was head of the IOC in 1972, and those were helpful as well. Um, and then obviously, uh, uh, many interviews. I, I interviewed eight of the 11 U.S. players still alive, uh, along with the daughter of Dwight Jones, who has who had passed away, um, a, a number of journalists and others who were at the game, uh, along with um, the former now New Jersey Nets owner who was actually in Moscow listening to the game, and I'm sorry, watching the game. Um, and it's sort of amazing because back then the thought that he would own a American basketball team when it was the Soviet Union was impossible, but that's what happened. So I, I uh, got his insights as well yeah i thought it was very cool that you had that you had some insight from uh mikhail prokhorov mm-hmm. um so you, you briefly mentioned the, the tragedy that took place before could you kind of give a short synopsis of what happened and explain why you chose to start the book there yeah that's a good question so uh some palestinian terrorists known as black september uh, came into the Olympic Village uh, scouting for Israeli athletes and coaches. Uh, I, I would point out, it's sort of a prelude to this, the security was very lax. Um, the Munich Olympics were the first Olympics in Germany since Berlin in 1936, and they didn't want any sort of reference to any sort of militaristic attitude or uh, you know, guns on the security people, that sort of thing. So uh, the Palestinian terrorists could simply jump over a fence and get into the Olympic Village. Uh, they ended up killing 11, uh, sorry, 11 Israeli athletes and coaches, um, two at the Olympic Village, nine at the airport as they were trying to escape. Uh, so, I mean, you know, this is what this Olympics is most remembered for, without a doubt. And I, I started my first chapter with... Uh, this information, mainly because one of the U.S. players was involved. Um, Tom Burleson, uh, the center for the team from North Carolina State, he uh, 
was coming back from downtown Munich and he was underneath uh, a certain area and all of a sudden he was surrounded by guards who two of them, he didn't understand what they were saying. They were speaking German. The third one spoke English and was saying, you know, the hostages are coming. What, what are you doing here? And it ended up Tom Burleson ended up with a gun to his head and he thought he was going to be killed. Um, and while this was happening, he could hear the hostages passing behind him crying and he, he got a, a look at one of the terrorists as well. Um, so just the, the drama of that situation and the fact that the terrorism was such had such a big impact on the games and the fact that one American player was so closely involved with it, I, I thought was uh, the best way to start the book. Mm-hmm. How seriously did the IOC consider canceling the games or were there any individual athletes or teams that considered not participating after the tragedy? Yes, I believe uh, Israel left the Israeli athletes who are still around. Israelis stopped competing in the games. Um, a lot of people at that point, a lot of athletes, coaches, and others thought the Olympics should be canceled, um, including some of the American players. I think a lot of them were shocked when the following morning, September 6th, uh, they gathered at, at the main Olympic stadium and Avery Brundage, Brundage announced in a now famous quote, the games must go on. And uh, some of the U.S. players I spoke with who originally thought the game should be canceled, you know, looking back, they realized it was more important to have them continue because that canceling them would have played into the terrorist hands. Uh, obviously, the whole feeling of the games had changed quite a bit, um, massively, in fact, uh, after the terrorism took place. Sure. Um, so on to basketball. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the history of Olympic basketball prior to 1972? Uh, I do, yes. Um, and the Americans were in the first Olympics where basketball was played in Berlin in 1936. And they had won every Olympic gold medal and had never lost a game. Uh, in fact, by the time they played the Soviet Union in the gold medal game, they were 63-0. and um, So they pretty much dominated uh, the sport in the Olympics. There, there were the occasional teams, such as the Soviet Union, who would uh, you know, come close to beating them. Um, but really, I mean, it was such an American dominated sport at that point. It had been created in America and the U S, uh, just really was on fire during the Olympics, uh, since 1936. And yet in the book, you, you give, you know, you give the impression that at least some people thought the United States might be somewhat vulnerable in, in 1972, even though they had never lost before. Can you explain what made them somewhat vulnerable that year? Well, they were starting to lose in, in other areas, such as uh, a world championship and uh, those type of things. As well, in 72, uh, Bill Walton did not join the team. He was the best basketball player, college basketball player in the country. So, so that hurt them. As well, Hank Iver, their coach, he hadn't coached for two years. He was mainly chosen because um, he had won in 64 and 68 with the U.S. team. He had won gold medals both times. And other, other teams were starting to come around and play better. 
And the Soviet Union, in fact, I mean, they the way it was set up back then, they just had players who had played in previous Olympics, uh, which really was against the rules because they were professional players for the most part. Whereas the U.S. every four years depended on college players and players from the Amateur Athletic Union, which was a big deal at that point. So they had new teams every year. They'd only have, or sorry, every four years, they'd only have a couple of months to get together, pick players and practice. Um, so yes, in 72, uh, there was, you know, the thought that this could be the end. I would suggest though, certain other years, it, it was almost, especially in the sixties, <clears throat> almost a standard talking point, you know, will this be the year the U S loses and, you know, other teams seem to be getting better. Uh, so it really, it wasn't unique to 72, but there were some definite problems, uh, you know, that the American team faced. You mentioned Hank Iba, um, who is kind of a central figure in this book. Can you talk a little bit about him? Sure. Uh, he was a very well-regarded coach. He had been with Oklahoma State, won a couple of NCAA titles with them back in the 40s, uh, and he coached there for forever, seemingly. Uh, he was a very strong proponent of defense, and it had gotten him very far in his career. Uh, but one issue that some of the players had in 72 was they were more uh, shooters, running gunners. Um, and Hank Iba just kept focusing on defense, uh, which nothing wrong with that, really. But they they felt like they weren't playing to their strengths. And especially in the Soviet Union game, uh, it became apparent that, you know, just passing the ball five to six times before they took a shot, which was one of Hank Iba's uh, mantras, just wasn't getting it done. Do you think the American players or coaches were overconfident heading into the games? Yes, I would say so. Um, in fact, I mean, they really didn't scout the other teams, and that was a huge issue. Tom, and, Tom Henderson, uh, one of the U.S. players, told me, he um, he had never seen Sergei Belov play, and this guy had the most points of anyone uh, in the gold medal game, 20 points, which was, you know, of the U.S. team, that'd be 40% of their points, um, and not just about that for the Soviets. So, I mean, they, you know, they were a little cocky. They thought, you know, we've never lost a game. Well, we can beat everyone. But, I mean, the fact that they weren't even scouting uh, the Soviets, which was a coaching decision, was a little uh, crazy. I, I just think, as Tom Henderson pointed out, that can only help to know who you're going to play, what their strengths and weaknesses are. Yeah, I, I have to say, I, I I think I found that to be the most shocking thing in the book when I read that. Right. I, I just could not believe that the the one team with with the best you know the best chance to beat you that you wouldn't scout their players was right mind blowing. Yeah, exactly. And but that was the attitude. I mean, Hank Iba had won two gold medals, and he wanted to play the way he wanted to play against any competitor. Uh, it, it reminded me a little bit of John Wooden, who was obviously amazingly successful at UCLA. He had a similar attitude in the sense of let's control what we can control. And, you know, if we play our best, we'll beat anybody. But, um, you know, uh, yeah, it, they should have definitely scouted the Soviets. 
So I don't know if you heard, but this morning the United States basketball team lost to Serbia in the FIBA tournament, which was their second loss in the tournament. Uh, oh, I hadn't. I knew they lost to France, but no, yeah. I didn't hear that this, this morning. morning they lost to Serbia. Um, they were down 32 to 7. Oh, my God. To start the game, and they came storming back, but, but they did lose in the end. And, of course, uh, you know, the United States, we didn't send our best players to this tournament, right? I mean, right. I, maybe Kemba Walker is the best player on the team who was a great player, but clearly we didn't send our best roster over. And you mentioned uh, Bill Walton, who was the best player in the country at that time at the collegiate level. Mm-hmm. Other than Walton, did the American roster reflect the best players, the best collegiate players in the country? Uh, somewhat, but not entirely. I mean, there were some players who had already, uh, well, they were unable to play because they joined the ABA or NBA early. Um, and some of the players who were really good, like Marvin Barnes, uh, Coach Iba didn't really like. He didn't think he'd fit into his defensive-oriented system. Um, so I would say, yes, it could have been a better team, but at the same time, they got, you know, some of these, some of the best players around, uh, guys like Tom McMillan certainly was sensational and Ed Ratliff had really shown uh, his stuff at Long Beach State. Um, Tom Burleson, who ended up not playing much, but he was going to become a force at North Carolina State, helped them to the NCAA title in 1974. So I, I can't. Um, really diminish any of the players. Uh, they were all really good, fantastic college players. But there were, you know, maybe one or two others who might have joined but just didn't fit Iba's system. Um, and I would say, I mean, Jim Forbes, uh, he was a very late addition uh, because of an injury to another player. So he, when he came onto the team, he really hadn't had the uh, the practice in Hawaii. They they had all practiced in Pearl Harbor under horrendous conditions for for basketball players at least, and uh, so he didn't he wasn't as familiar with the system. He came in very late, and that you know things like that could have uh, hurt the team in, in that final game against the Soviets. Um, another fantastic player on the on that team was Doug Collins, right. So he- he went on to be the number one pick in the draft. Exactly. Um, he also, in that game against the Soviet Union, made what, a, what appeared to be the game-winning play. Can you talk a little bit about Doug Collins? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, because what, what an amazing play he did make, even before those free throws. Uh, the Soviets had the ball roughly eight to ten seconds left, let's say. They had already tried a shot. They did not have to take another shot. The shot clock was off. They really could have just dribbled the ball away or tried to get fouled or something. Uh, but Alexander Beloff, for some reason, uh, tried to throw a pass. And Doug Collins was watching this, and he intercepted the pass. And, you know, time's running down, six seconds, five seconds. He's going all the way down the court to the other end. And he was fouled by a Soviet player and was just – he was basically, he was leveled, I guess is one way to put it. He, he fell into the basketball stanchion. His head was under it. So he was sort of, you know, woozy, almost knocked out. Uh, he, and the U.S. was down by one point at this, at this time. So he had two free throws. Um, 
and he decided to take them. He, you know, even though he was a little out of it, he switched them both. Uh, you know, under the most incredible pressure you can imagine, and that was the first lead in the game for the United States, uh, fifty to forty-nine, with three seconds left. And then, of course, the controversy came into play. Could you give a basic rundown of what took place after Collins made those two free throws? Yes, uh, a lot happened. So the Soviets immediately inbounded the ball, and two seconds were played before one of the referees called a timeout. And the timeout was because the Soviet assistant coach claimed he had called a timeout, and the refs didn't see it or the scores table didn't see it. And... So at this point, out from the stands came R. William Jones, the head of international basketball. Again, two seconds had been played. R. William Jones said three seconds remain. And he was the head of international basketball. It's like if uh, Adam Silver came out onto the court during an NBA game and changed the amount of time left. So it was unprecedented. But... Everyone there owed their jobs to R. William Jones. So they played it again. Three seconds remained. Uh, in, the, in the midst of this, an illegal substitution occurred for the Soviet Union. Uh, and there should have been technical foul called there, but that didn't happen. So anyway, the Soviets inbounded it again, uh, took a long shot, missed. The Americans had won. Three seconds had obviously passed. Um, and the Americans were jumping up and down, celebrating their gold medal. Our William Jones came down again from the stands, and he said the clock had not been set correctly. Uh, it was at 50 seconds, 5-0, instead of 3 seconds. Uh, he was correct. It hadn't been set correctly. They were still trying to set it correctly while the play went on. But that really didn't matter. Uh, the play happened. It took you know, 3 seconds plus. And the game was over. Everyone knew three seconds remained because the public address announcer kept saying it before the play. So, uh, the, R. William Jones put three more seconds on the clock. So this was the third time the three seconds would be played. And one of the referees who was from Bulgaria told Tom McMillan that he could not guard the inbounder the way he had on the previous play. Um, he basically made some motion that Tom Millen, sorry, Tom McMillan understood that he had to get away from the inbounder. This gave the inbounder a perfect look down court, unlike the previous play where he inbounded the ball in the backcourt. So he threw it all the way down court. Alexander Beloff caught the ball uh, as two American defenders were trying to get it. And one ran by him and Jim Forbes uh, fell down. And Beloff had probably the easiest shot of the tournament because um, no one was there guarding him, and he was right by the basket. He put it in, and, and that was the last play, and the Soviets won 51-50. to 50. So you, you mentioned R. William Jones, who, mm-hmm. if there's a villain, a villain in this whole controversy, he would, he would appear to be it. Mm-hmm. Um, what was his background, and... and if you could maybe explain what his agenda might have been. Certainly. Uh, he was heavily involved with basketball. He started 
uh, FIBA in the 30s, and he was part of the first Olympics in Berlin in 1936. He'd been head of the international, uh, sorry, head of international basketball for many decades. Um, in the 50s, the U.S. coach at the 52 Olympics, Fog Allen, registered a number of complaints about R. William Jones, saying. He was in the Soviet camp. He favored the Soviets too much. He shouldn't be sitting with the Soviets during games. Uh, so there had been already some suspicions about R. William Jones. But then uh, I would point out that he, again, head of international basketball, the Americans kept winning. He had an interest in expanding international basketball. And that was tough to do when every Olympics, the U.S. just simply won every game and the gold medal. So by the fact of having the U.S. lose, in part by his decisions at the end, international basketball could only expand because, you know, other teams could win. There'd be more interest in the game and that sort of thing. Uh, obviously, you look at it today, it's amazing how it's grown with so many countries involved with basketball, the U.S. team losing, as you noted, uh, to Serbia and France. Things have changed quite a bit, although I'd say the U.S. still dominates overall. Uh, so, yeah, he had he had an interest in it. And even after the game, his comment was uh, the United States needs to know how to lose once, which is sort of a bizarre comment. Um, and I would also add, after the game, the U.S. appealed. Um, and R. William Jones put basically a crony on the appeals board. Uh, it, the appeal went against the U.S. 3-2. to two, um, which was along sort of Soviet lines and U.S. lines, the votes. And, uh, and that was that. The, the players uh, did not, the U.S. players did not attend the medal ceremony. It's natural that as Americans, we look at this from the American point of view. Yeah. But um, I'm curious to hear what you think this, this win meant for the Soviet Union as a country and for the players on the team? Uh, that's a great question. It, it meant a ton for the country. I mean, to beat the U.S. at that point during the Cold War was just huge, uh, and it helped Soviet propaganda, uh, if I can call it that, um, at the time. And for the players, it's sort of ironic. Under communism, in theory, everyone's equal and so forth. Uh, they were treated like kings, um, and just, you know, had all sorts of perks when they got back to the Soviet Union um, and were treated like heroes, obviously. Uh, unfortunately, the person who scored the last basket, Alexander Beloff, he died very young in his 20s. Um, and most of the other players have passed away as well. I, I don't remember the exact number, but I think four or five still remain. Um, so the U.S. players have lived longer, but with <laughs> with a lot of uh, suffering and anger over the loss. Uh, but yeah, the Soviet players uh, really were uh, welcomed and, and just treated so well after that game. But they were still amateurs, right? <laughs> uh, well, they, they were not. Um, I mean, the IOC seemed to look the other way on that issue. The Soviets were obviously professionals who uh, made their living in basketball in the Soviet Union. And um, 
but and within the Olympic Charter, it could be argued the U.S. should have won the game because the Soviets were not amateurs. Um, it, it's sort of amazing how, how that worked out. Uh, and I guess it did make sense finally in the 90s when the Olympics was opened up to any player as opposed to just amateurs, which in the U.S. meant true amateurs and in the Soviet Union meant false amateurs. Um, but... Uh, yeah, the Soviets were definitely pros who, uh, they, they, and as I mentioned earlier, they, a lot of them had played in previous Olympics. I mean, one of the players on the Soviets was, uh, in his thirties. And I mean, the Americans were all in college for the most part, except for Kenny Davis, the team captain. So they were in their early twenties and they were playing guys who were, you know, really pros. So you mentioned that the Americans decided not to accept their silver medals. How did they come to that decision? It was interesting talking with them about that. It, it just seemed to be by acclamation almost. They, you know, they were furious in that locker room after the game. And uh, I think it was Kevin Joyce who told me, you know, he was probably throwing stuff. I mean, they were just enraged. And it, it seemed like in the locker room it, there wasn't a vote. But they just all seem to agree and understand, like, you know, no way I'm taking this medal. No chance. This was not the medal we won. And uh, as I noted the next day, um, they were not on the medal stand. Um, and Hank Iba, he, he already had flown home after the game. Uh, I don't even think he was there during the appeal. He, he flew back to Oklahoma. Uh, they were just absolutely furious. Again, this was unprecedented. And, you know, uh, Ed Ratliff, Ed Ratliff was, you know, one of some who were concerned. I mean, how is this going to be perceived? Um, in 68, they had, uh, the black power salute at the Olympics by two American athletes. And that was not well received. I mean, how would it look to reject Olympic medals? And it's interesting, Tom McMillan, who played at University of Maryland, uh, his coach, Lefty Drizel, uh, was very angry with Tom for rejecting the medal. Um, but I talked to Lefty uh, two years ago, I guess it was now, and he says now he agrees that Tom and the team made the right decision. They should not have accepted that medal. They had won the gold medal twice. They did not deserve the silver medal. Was there anybody on the team or a coach that you spoke to that believed either believed then or believes now that they should accept the medals? The, uh, the players have been very unified in their stand against it. Uh, but with a couple of exceptions, I know at one point Tom Burleson was wavering thinking they should just accept the silver medal and, and one or two others have made thoughts or made comments to that effect. But at this point, I mean, it's almost 50 years later. Uh, they all met in 2012, had a 40th reunion. A lot of them hadn't seen each other since that game in 1972. And they all agreed then uh, there was no way they would accept the silver medal. Uh, Tom McMillan has made the suggestion of a duplicate gold medal. Uh, Kenny Davis, for one, the team captain, did not like that idea. He said, you, you can't have a 
the, all games have a winner and a loser. You can't have two winners, two gold medals. So at this point, I mean, it looks like, unfortunately, the U.S. athletes, you know, they're old enough now to collect Social Security. They have grandchildren. Way back when, they were in their early 20s. At this point, it, it looks like they'll never be able to uh, receive a gold medal. What do you think of their decision not to accept their medals? Uh, I actually think it's great. Uh, I, I would also say it's how hard could that be? I mean, as you're a young boy um, or a young girl, obviously, but for this case, it was a men's basketball team. You're a young boy. Your dream is to win an Olympic medal. Uh, I mean, it's hard to do any better unless you're talking about maybe a Super Bowl or a World Series. I mean, Olympic medal around the world is sort of the ultimate goal for an athlete. And the fact that they made a stand, a principled stand, and said, we won this game by the rules of the game. We won it twice, basically. And then we're told we were lost, that we had lost. Um, I think they made the right choice. Uh, again, a, a really tough choice for someone who uh, always had hoped they could win the gold and were, in fact, the first American team not to win the gold. Uh, I talked to Jerry Colangelo, who is obviously very big in USA basketball, and he said um, he had had Doug Collins talk to one of his teams, and he could see in Doug Collins' face just you know how painful it had been for him not to be able to have that gold medal. And this was decades after the game. And, I, I, you know, a lot of players have that feeling. I mean, it's so, so tough to not win the gold and to not even have any medal to show for what they did. And, again, that was their decision, and it's, I think it was the right one. It's evident in the book, uh, you know, towards the end that, um, you know, we're going on 50 years now and mm -hmm. it's, it clearly still, you know, is a very upsetting subject for many of the players. Right. Did, did you get the sense of talking to any of the players that the game and or the tragedy in Munich had a significant impact on their lives going forward? Oh yeah. I'd say both did. Um, you know, to be that close to death, especially at a, an innocent, civilized sports event, definitely affected a number of them. Uh, Tom Burleson, maybe most of all, given the fact that he was really the most in harm's way, he, he really thought he was about to die uh, at the hands of the German guard. Um, and the game itself, yes. I mean, Kenny Davis, he said... Uh, you know, he can't hear the national anthem being played without thinking about what they lost uh, at that games. Because had they won the gold, they would have been at the medal ceremony. They would have seen the flag go up, heard the national anthem. So that still impacts him to this day. And as you know, at the end of the book, I point out how he still dreams about the German announcer saying three seconds left. You know, he, he just has nightmares about that. So, yeah, the terrorism and the game, uh, both significantly to this day, have, have impacts on the players. Well, I've taken enough of your time, David. Uh, one final question. Do you plan on writing another book in the near future? 
Uh, I would like to write more without a doubt. I have a couple of topics I'm thinking about, uh, both involve sports. Uh, one um, involves sports betting, which has become so big around the country uh, since the Supreme Court made its ruling last year. And now all 50 states can approve to have sports betting if, if they wish. Um, and then I have an, another idea about maybe uh, brothers in sports, uh, you know, what it's like to, uh, you know, play with and against each other as kids and then do that as well on the pro level. Uh, so, yes, I definitely hope and expect to write, uh, you know, at least one more book, maybe more than that uh, as the years go on. I look forward to reading them. Once again, the, the book is called Three Seconds in Munich, the Controversial 1972 Olympic Basketball Team by David Sweet. David, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you so much, Paul. I really appreciate it. Okay. Take care. You too.